Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Banking big beats and blunders. J.P. Morgan earnings delight while Wells Fargo's profits dive. Return of the Jedi. Amazon fighting Microsoft over a potential $10 billion military contract. And retailing robots coming to a supermarket near you. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move and a jam-packed show for you today, including the fact that we've kicked off earnings season. Wall Street right now consolidating, I have to say, after a record-setting session on Monday. The S&P and the Nasdaq both hitting all-time highs. Today, we're watching at banks specifically. JP Morgan actually is the current outperformer. A huge earnings beat versus earnings estimates. All the details on that to come, but it was pretty broad based, I can tell you, on a resurgence of trading income, too. We've also got a currency market olive branch from the U.S. heading into the U.S.-China trade deal signing ceremony tomorrow, of course. But, you know, stocks may be taking a pause here, but we have come a long way fast. And I keep reiterating this. If you remember last Tuesday, investors and therefore markets, too, were grappling with the possibility of potential war in the Middle East. Yet since last Tuesday's close, the Nasdaq and the S&P have risen one and a half percent plus. Japan's Nikkei over in Asia and the German DAX are up almost 2%. In fact, the Nikkei powered ahead today following the long weekend too. The bottom line is that the rally in stocks that we're seeing right now is a global story and very much in line with that. The safe haven assets continue to retrace some of those recent gains we saw too. The Japanese yen now sitting at an eight-month low versus the U.S. dollar. Gold has retraced another half of 1%. This rotation, I have to say, may continue too, judging by uh, the big earnings out from the banks this morning, suggesting, at least as far as the U.S. is concerned, there's a reason to be optimistic about the economic outlook. And that's where we start the drivers. Let's get to it. The three major U.S. banks kick-starting earnings season this morning. J.P. Morgan's profits jumping more than 20% in the fourth quarter. City also beat expectations, but it was some bad news from Wells Fargo. Profits at that bank dropping over 50% compared to the same quarter of last year. Paul and Monica joins us with all the details. Paul, it is a lot to wade through, but just start by talking through JP Morgan's what looks like a, a record year for these guys, and it's pretty broad-based in terms of the performance too. Exactly, Julia. You had strong demand for consumer loans, auto loans, and credit cards. That helped fuel some of the gains, but also businesses are more confident and are taking out more loans as well. They are selling stock, they're selling bonds, and underwriting fees helped lift J.P. Morgan's results. And trading revenue was also a bright spot for them and City. And I think this all reflects, as Jamie Dimon said, 
both in the press release and in a call with reporters, I think a lot of U.S. businesses are more confident now because of that phase one trade deal that the U.S. and China signed leading to more confidence. Yeah, if you take that uh, trade uncertainty out of it, then the hope is that the performance pickable, the consolidation at least, continues. Now, is that the sound of kitchen sinking I hear if I uh, look over at Wells Fargo with a new CEO in charge? I mean, yes, there are challenges for all of these banks in terms of low interest rates, legal costs for Wells Fargo. But I can't help but look at these results and think there's something more to it as well. Yeah, you have a new CEO at Wells Fargo, so they very well could be setting the bar extremely low in order to beat estimates down the road. Today, that's no solace for Wells Fargo investors. The stock is down on these results that missed forecasts. And the new CEO admitted that they have to regain consumers' trust. And the CFO said that expenses are too high and the bank has to become more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. And very quickly, Paul, on this, I just want to uh, mention a report done by the New York Fed talking about the cyber risk for some of these banks and how crippling it could be for the system. I just want to mention this because I do wonder whether some of these CEOs on earnings calls today are going to be asked about the preparations they've made, particularly in light of the conversations about Iranian cyber risk in in the last few uh, days and uh, week or so. Yeah, it's a great question. No one asked that specifically during the media call with J.P. Morgan Chase. But I do think that when you look at that New York Fed report and it talks about how the big five banks, they could hoard cash and liquidity if there is a significant cyber attack that disrupts the financial systems. And that could obviously lead to a major uh, bottleneck and uh, ripple effect for other banks. You know, the New York Fed estimating that, you know, nearly 40% of uh, banks could be impacted by this. And it sounds, in some respects, very similar to concerns about what happened in 2008. We all thought subprime loan uh, damage was contained until it wasn't. There was all that counterparty risk and contagion. I think that cybersecurity is now becoming one of the biggest threats and concerns for banks and the financial system writ large. Absolutely. And to your point, they've targeted the banks in the United States uh, in the past as well. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Now, to China now, or at least D.C., a 10-member Chinese delegation has arrived in Washington for Wednesday's Fade One trade deal signing ceremony, as we were just mentioning. And on cue, the U.S. Treasury has removed China from its list of currency manipulators just as the Chinese yuan hits a five-month high against the U.S. dollar. Christine Roman's joins me now. Christine, timing, as they say, is everything in this regard. But we've been pretty much in the dark about the details, the contours of this trade deal, this phase one trade deal. And according to some of the speculation, it may be a little bit more comprehensive than perhaps some speculation suggested. What do we think on this? We won't really see the text probably until this thing is signed. It's going through the translation process. And we're told by the U.S. Trade Representative's Office and the Treasury Secretary, everything's copacetic here. Uh, They're just going through the translation process. Uh, But it'll be signed before we really get uh, our teeth into it. What people around it and what media reports are saying is you've got some big uh, uh, purchases from the Chinese of not just farm farm, uh, products, but other things too, automobiles and other kind of manufacturing goods in the United States and services as well. U.S. drops tariffs. And then they're starting to see the beginnings of of China make some promises about uh, 
tweaking its forced technology transfer practice that has been a big, big problem for American companies. Dropping the currency manipulator uh, label, that's remarkable. And it's a real olive branch from the president because he has for months said that it was a no-brainer that they were currency manipulators. Five months ago, they officially, the Treasury Department officially labeled a China currency manipulator, say 10 times fast. But this is what Steven Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, is saying now. They have made commitments, enforceable commitments. That word is super important to refrain from competitive devaluation while promoting transparency and accountability. You know, it wasn't very long ago that the president of the United States said there is no way he would sign a small deal or a piece of a deal that he wanted the whole kit and caboodle to fix an unfair trade uh, deal, a trade situation with China. Now it is an election year. You will see him rebranding this small deal. And maybe it's small, a little bit bigger than just really skinny. And uh, he's going to rebrand that as a promise kept. I think you'll see that this week. Slightly less skinny than uh, initially thought at this stage. But I completely agree with you on the enforcement word, whether we're talking about currency manipulation or not, given that the IMF said their their currency was fair, of course, fairly valued. But enforcement on this entire deal going to be key, Christine. But uh, hopefully it boosts the U.S. economy because uh, this U.S. administration couldn't half use it if we look at the budget deficit numbers that we got. A 12% rise in the fiscal uh, three, first three months of uh, 2020. Wowzers you know, is the Julia, only word I can here's use. Here's the thing. This is another big number in the Trump economy, right? And it's not the kind of number that Trump promised he would do. It's not a big jobs number, a big economy number. You usually see budget deficits swelling in bad times as tax receipts go down and the government spending big to try to rescue the economy. For the year... The budget deficit in the country topped a trillion dollars. We knew that would happen. But then the first three months of this new fiscal year, up 12 percent. Health care costs are going higher. Uh, defense spending is going up. And those big tax cuts mean the money coming in from big companies is down. And so that's what a budget deficit looks like. You know, I'm reminded J.P. Morgan Chase uh, uh, CEO Jamie Dimon likes to say that uh, when you fix the roof, when it's not raining, when the sun is shining. Well, the sun is shining And we are not fixing the roof. Instead, we are spending money we don't have. And that is something the president promised he wouldn't do. In fact, he criticized uh, President uh, Obama when they were deficit spending in the middle of a recession. He said, America's debt is greater than our GDP. Time for new thinking. Donald J. Trump apparently has the same old thinking as the president he criticized. Yeah. New president, same old thinking, perhaps. We shall see. Yes, spend less or grow more. And uh, by grow, I yep. mean grow your GDP, your economy. More than 2%. 2% is not going to cut it. <laughs> yes, not good enough. Yeah. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. All right, next driver, Amazon heading to court to file an injunction against Microsoft's $10 billion U.S. military comp- contract. Amazon was widely believed to be the front runner to snag the cloud computing contract called the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, or JEDI. Believing it was edged out, though, due to on the ongoing feud between CEO Jeff Bezos and President Trump. Brian Fung is in Washington for us on this story. I have to say, I expected this to come before now, to be honest, Brian. Amazon thought they had it in the bag, ultimately, and they clearly think this decision was political. It was against Jeff Bezos and, of course, his ownership of The Washington Post. What more do we know here? 
Well, Amazon essentially wants a do-over of the uh, contract award process for this $10 billion contract. As you may remember, uh, this contract is all about providing cloud computing storage to the Pentagon, as well as technology such as artificial intelligence to help uh, the military analyze data that it gets from out in the field. Um, it, it's also looking at, um, you know, the, this issue is also all about uh, how Amazon, as you said, um, has had a lot of tensions with the president um, you know, in its complaint protesting the award to Microsoft, it sort of highlighted a number of issues that it said showed how President Trump um, has uh, viewed this issue through the lens of a personal and political nature, um, saying, you know, President Trump has tweeted all about uh, Jeff Bezos. He's called out Jeff Bezos and Amazon for, uh, for example, you know, paying below market rates to to the post office for shipping um, Amazon packages to consumers. It's you know, Trump has gone after uh, Amazon for uh, for issues, um, including the the as this Jedi uh, contract, where it's been reported that the president um, told then Secretary of Defense James Mattis to quote screw Amazon out of this contract. And um, Amazon sort of includes all of these different elements in its protest of the the Jedi contract, and it's now asking um, for a court to intervene here uh, and, and essentially reverse the decision that the, the Pentagon made and try again with a new process. Yeah, it's going to be quite interesting to see. I mean, there's another player here, of course, and that's Microsoft, who thought they'd won this contract. The CEO, Satya Nadella, has talked about this having a, a halo effect around the business here, a huge blow, ultimately, if this decision then goes against them. Huge implications for both companies here. Absolutely. Uh, Microsoft has made a big bet on cloud computing and artificial intelligence uh, and, and services as part of its um, business model here. And um, for, for Microsoft, this Jedi contract with the Pentagon is a major, major deal and could um, put it on, on the road to uh, a lot more business moving forward. So, you know, this is something that... Um, uh, is going to be really key uh, for for Microsoft. Uh, it's not commenting on um, the specifics of of the protest yet. Um, it's expected to file on January 24th. Its response calling for uh, uh, the the complaint to be dismissed. Um, that same day, Amazon is also expected to file its request for preliminary preliminary injunction. Excuse me. Uh, and so we'll be watching very closely uh, as as this uh, court proceeding unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. Brian Fung, great to have you with us. Uh, thank you for that. I'm just watching Microsoft pre-market actually barely budging. If they really thought that this contract was going to shift anywhere, we would see an instant reaction to, to your point. Very important to Brian Fung. Thank you so much for that. Look at that. Zero reaction. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Democratic presidential hopeful Senator Bernie Sanders has denied telling his rival Elizabeth Warren that a woman could not win the election. Warren says Sanders made the statement in 2018 in a 2018 meeting about her candidacy. The two are due to come face to face in a final debate ahead of the Iowa caucuses in just a few hours time. Ryan Noble joins me. Wow. So uh, Elizabeth Warren saying one thing, Bernie Sanders denying it ultimately. Are the gloves going to be off tonight in this debate? Never mind this story, but beyond. 
Yeah, Julia, I, I do think that this is going to come up in the debate tonight, but I wonder just how much both Sanders and Warren really want to engage on this topic. I know it's the last thing that the Bernie Sanders campaign wants to be talking about. And, and judging by the statement that Elizabeth Warren put out late last night, where she said basically that, yes, in her opinion, in that conversation, uh, Bernie Sanders did give her the impression that he didn't think a woman could win in 2020, but that she didn't want to talk about it anymore. Now, this has definitely become a he said, she said. There were only two people in the room during that private conversation. It was Bernie Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they obviously have a difference of opinion as to what exactly they talked about. I think you're going to get see both of them uh, attempt to clarify their perspective on this. But this is basically already baked into the cake. You know, your impression of this is basically going to be uh, based on who you trust more, Sanders or Warren. To your point, though, Julia, I do think you're going to see Sanders at least pivot a little bit and try and make this conversation more about Joe Biden and his role in this race. Uh, Sanders and Biden uh, have been itching for a fight for uh, the last uh, couple of days leading up to this debate here tonight, particularly uh, as it relates to the situation in Iran. Sanders wants to make uh, the former vice president's vote to support the Iraq war a central point of contention here on this debate stage tonight. Uh, Julia, I do think kind of the overarching theme here is that we're getting very close to votes actually being cast here. And you can see all of these campaigns stepping up uh, their efforts to draw distinctions between one another. That's really at the core uh, of this flap between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. We'll have to see tonight how it actually all plays out. Julia? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to uh, give further clarification on this when one of them saying it happened and one of them saying uh, it, it never happened, quite frankly. To your point, do you think Joe Biden, with his experience, particularly as far as geopolitics is concerned and amid the Iranian situation and the handling of the Iranian situation, do you think he can capitalize tonight? Yeah, I do think that, you know, you're going to see differing opinions on this, right? And, and I do think that the Biden team, as much as Sanders believes that this is an area where they uh, could potentially score points, I think the Biden uh, camp is definitely welcome to this conversation. They believe that Joe Biden's lengthy foreign uh, uh, policy experience, not only his portfolio as vice president, but his time spent in the United States Senate, specifically dealing with foreign policy issues, are one of the big reasons that he should be commander in chief. So even though Bernie Sanders is going to criticize size of that vote uh, to support the war in Iraq. Uh, Joe Biden is going to ask Democratic voters to look at the totality of his record. The fact that he's met with many of these foreign leaders, he's traveled to these parts of the world. He understands uh, these conflicts on a very granular level, and that's why he deserves to be president of the United States. It's going to be an interesting conversation for sure, because both sides uh, have uh, a very uh, specific opinion as to how this should all play out. And they're going to make their pitch to Democratic voters tonight. Yeah, well and truly policy-driven, which is what we need. Ryan Nobles, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. As we were mentioning there tonight, six of the remaining 12 Democrats will take to the stage for the final debate before the Iowa caucuses. The debate is hosted by CNN and the Des Moines Register. You can watch all the action here on CNN on Tuesday night at 9 New York time, Wednesday morning at 10 in Hong Kong. Meanwhile, Iran says several people have been arrested over the downing of the Ukrainian passenger plane shortly after takeoff on Wednesday last week. The authorities did not provide details on how many had been arrested or what their role in the incident was. All 176 people on board were killed in the crash. Queen Elizabeth has agreed to a period of transition quote for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, while details of a more independent future for the couple are being worked out. The Queen says she expects a final decision on their roles to be reached in the coming days. 
All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But when we return, a rare intervention by the U.S. Attorney General as Apple comes under pressure once again, this time to unlock the phones belonging to a mass shooter. Walmart, meanwhile, stocking up on robots and denies that human workers will be left on the shelf. Stay with us this after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks still on target for a pretty soft open here. The S&P and the Nasdaq sector pull back from record highs, but minor, minor. We'll call that unchanged amid some diverse, let's call it that, results from the major banks. More than that in just a moment. But if you remember yesterday, we talked with Bank of America about the rise of sustainable investing. Well, as if on cue today, investment giant BlackRock has announced a major new commitment to ESG investing, putting sustainability at the center of its investment strategy. That includes doubling the numbers of its environmentally friendly funds. And remember, we talked about the passive inflows into ESG yesterday, too. This is going to be a conversation we have more and more. Meanwhile, JP Morgan and Citigroup report better than expected quarterly results, driven by strong fixed income and trading revenue. Wells Fargo, meanwhile, saw profits drop more than 50% after a surging costs stemming from a series of scandals, legal costs I'm talking about. Susan Schmidt joins us now. She's the head of U.S. equities at Aviva Investors. Susan, fantastic to have you with us. I just want to get your take on financials more broadly. I know you don't look at them, these stocks individually, but if we see, look at some of the key takeaways, whether it's managing the low rate environment, their expectations for the U.S. economy here, in line with the performance we've already seen from financials over the last 12 months, is there more room for upside in financials in the United States here in 2020? I certainly think there is, and we're just starting to get earnings now on the fourth quarter. But I think we're seeing some resiliency and a reminder to investors that there are other ways besides a, a net interest margin to, for these banks to make money. And I think that's what's important. Net interest income overall is increasing. Scale is showing to be very important. And I think these banks are showing that the underlying economy remains healthy. We are seeing loan growth. And I think there are a lot of positives here. You know, there are those that say a lot of the financial performance, and I mentioned it there, is due to buybacks, the sheer scale of buybacks that we got in, in 2019. If a client said that to you, would you say, OK, that's just part of the deal here as far as these stocks are concerned? There is more room for upside? Think, or is that a concern? No, not a concern. The buybacks, I think, are a function of the better capital controls that we've put on these banks. Remember that they've come through this recovery in the beginning of the recovery with great restrictions put on them. They've been really careful about the balance sheet. And the buybacks show that they've had excess capital and the regulators are comfortable with them buying back the shares and reducing those capital levels because they feel comfortable with the credit structure of the assets at the bank. I think it's a positive. I think it's a normal development for these stocks is as they move into different vehicles. These are different businesses than they were before our downturn. And I think they're showing to be well-run enterprises. Such an interesting point. What about for the technology sector here? We've seen a real bump of performance, particularly for some of the FANG stocks at the beginning of 2020. Tech leadership, such an important theme in 2019. Do you expect that to continue in, in 2020? 
leadership has been an important theme, and it's really interesting to see the sentiment of the market reflected in tech. It seems to be the most volatile. As it goes up, it goes down. It really impacts people's decisions on whether they want to have a risk-on or risk-off exposure. I think tech does have more room to go. We're certainly positive there. I think people are looking for disruptors, where the productivity gains can come from. And tech companies are showing an ability to continue to have sales gains. It's not the end of semis. There's plenty of room left to go. And I think we're seeing that in the market response to it, waking up to there's a sustainability to these businesses that perhaps we didn't appreciate before. I know you're positive overall on uh, on U.S. stocks in, in 2020. We're going into earnings season. Forward guidance in particular, I know you, you think is going to be critically important here once again. What might trip investors up? What might surprise us in this earnings season? I think investors are going to be keenly aware of commentary from management. This time right. around, management should have a better handle on the impacts and repercussions from the trade agreement. I think any commentary around that is going to be important. If managements are still hesitant to talk about cost structure and impacts, I think the investors are going to back off as a result. Certainly, any change on this phase one trade deal, which has provided such optimism and a tailwind for the market, any setback there would be a negative for the market. Earnings overall, I think, are going to come in better than expected, and I think the optimism for the future will continue. Obviously, anything there that's a strong negative or a set of managements that's really pessimistic about the future is going to trip the market up. Oh, Susan Schwick, great to have you with us. An optimistic way to go into uh, the market open this morning, and that's what follows. We're back after this. First move live from the New York Stock Exchange and Equitable bringing the opening bell this morning. We're up and running here on Wall Street. We've got a mostly unchanged start to the trading day. A bit of consolidation, we're calling it, after a week of solid gains. Earnings season getting into full swing as well. Fundamentals well and truly back in focus. But I have to say, no alarm bells on U.S. inflation. December's core consumer prices coming in slightly weaker than expected. Wow, a lot of excitement here at this stock exchange. I can tell you, I wonder if that can G up stocks here. Let me give you a look at some of our global movers. Well, no Ging up required for Delta Airlines here. The U.S. carrier reported better than expected results, citing strong consumer demand. Another positive economic indicator for the U.S. economy, it seems. What about for the major banks, as we've been discussing on the show? Citigroup and J.P. Morgan are higher after their market-friendly results. Remember, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon said the U.S. consumer remains a strong point, too, and cited a degree of lessening, of course, of the uncertainty on trade, too. Wells Fargo, meanwhile, lower after uh, missing their earnings expectations. Profits falling by over half compared to the same quarter of last year. Right now down some 3.3%. To Apple now, and uh, Apple in focus after the US government made a request that Apple unlock two iPhones belonging to this man. He was a Saudi airman who opened fire at a US naval base last month, killing three before he himself was killed. The high-profile request was made by the Attorney General Bill Barr, 
escalating the ongoing battle over privacy and security. Apple says it already handed over all the evidence it has. Evan Perez joins us now. Evan, great to have you with us. The Attorney General said, quite frankly, they didn't go far enough. Apple, of course, said, look, we did what we could here, and creating a backdoor helps bad guys as well as good guys. You could argue they have a point. Tell us more. Well, that's right, uh, Julia. This has been a battle, obviously, that has been going on for some years now. And this one really crystallizes the, the, the issue between uh, certainly the, the, the tension between uh, the national security needs of the country, which is to try to figure out what happened in this terrorist attack and to try to prevent anything else from happening. And, of course, the privacy needs. And Apple is, says it's trying to protect the privacy of its customers by building this uh, this encryption system that it says it even cannot really get into. And so that's where uh, this is now uh, headed. The attorney general made clear yesterday that he believes that Apple has not provided uh, in, in, uh, assistance that is substantive enough to help this investigation. Keep in mind that Apple says that they've turned over uh, gigabytes of information uh, to the investigators who are looking into this case. And in this case, it's two iPhones, one of which the shooter actually put down and shot a bullet into. The FBI was, has been able to reconstruct the phone and get it to a place where what they need now is for Apple to unlock it. Apple says that they cannot do that. The technology they have, the encryption technology they have, is built in such a way that not even Apple can get into it. Now, we know that there was a previous case like this, Julia, where uh, there was a terrorist attack in San Bernardino a few years ago in California, and there was a similar fight. The, the Justice Department ended up suing Apple to try to force it to get into these phones. And in that case, they ended up withdrawing the lawsuit because in the end, the Justice Department, the FBI, was able to find an Israeli company that was able to get into this phone. So we'll see whether the FBI can find a private sector, a third party right. company to try to break into these phones. I think that is likely the solution uh, rather than Apple giving in uh, to these uh, demands from the Justice Department. Yeah, Apple puts their uh, reputation and stakes on privacy here. Very, very cautious about setting some kind of precedent here. Fantastic right. to have you with us, Evan. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, Impossible Foods' new pork leaves out everything, including the pig. Details on what the new plant-based alternative actually brings next. Welcome back to the show. Impossible Foods is making a move into plant-based pork. Having made its name with its beefless burger, the company debuted Impossible Pork at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Joining us for more is David Lee. He's the CFO of Impossible Foods. David, fantastic to have you with us. You made a real splash, I think, at CES last week. Can you just give us some clarity on when your porkless pork will be available in stores and precisely where? Absolutely. You know, we're very excited about Impossible Pork. Pork could be the most ubiquitous animal protein consumed globally. For now, we've released news about a great version of Impossible Pork, the Impossible Sausage, which will be featured by one of our customers, Burger King, as a sandwich. It's going to be at about 139 locations to start by the end of January in five different regions across the United States. 
When are you going to go beyond the United States? Because, you know, when I look at the statistics here, I, I look at Asia, I look at the demand, particularly for pork, meat-based products, and the opportunity that presents. 40% of the world's meat is consumed in Asia, too. Talk to me about how you're positioning to, to target the Asian consumer, including the Chinese consumer here as well. Absolutely. You're right. Our mission is global at Impossible Foods. And with Asia being such an important market for the meat market, we want to ensure that meat eaters there enjoy Impossible Pork, too. In fact, I just tried an Impossible Pork Shumai. That was that was great. We actually have a, a vibrant business in Singapore and Macau and Hong Kong. That business has grown multiples over the last six to 12 months. We were uh, just in Shanghai serving 25,000 servings of Impossible Pork under the auspices of a great local chef, which really proves that our products are not just relevant as a great burger in the U.S., but anything the meat eater can imagine that great pork that has no guilt can provide them globally. But we are not yet announcing more specifics about new markets. Stay tuned. It is an important part of the mission in business at Impossible. Do you think you can remain independent operating in China or is the local presence ultimately going to be key? Because there's already competition in the plant-based products in China. What are your expectations? It's a great question. You know, we have seen such demand globally for Impossible Pork, but also Impossible Burger, which you mentioned debuted just last year at our first showing at the Consumer Electronics Show, that we are open to partnering with anyone as long as it achieves our mission. You know, 95% of our hardcore consumers call themselves meat eaters, which means this multi-trillion dollar global market requires that we leverage every strategic option. And, and that can be different market by market. So we are in the midst of determining what is the right set of partners for each of the markets we hope to enter soon globally. Now, exactly on that point, there was some confusion created about your relationship with McDonald's. You've mentioned that you're working with Burger King and your products are going to be available there. Are you currently in talks with McDonald's? You know, it's interesting. Um, our point of view is to protect the confidentiality of our large customers. Um, so we only release information that our customers are happy for us to really release. I, I can confirm the following, that we hope and believe that meat eaters will determine the future of the planet. And that means that wherever meat is served is where eventually we want to be. But we're also pragmatic. You know, with the incredible demand we've seen for our debut of new products, we know that we have to continue to rapidly expand our capacity, which we're in the midst of, to ensure we serve our customers well. I'll take that as a not right now, but who knows what the future holds. <laughs> you know, one of the big issues, and you've mentioned it, I know, I'm moving on, um, was the guilt-free. You know, one of the big criticisms, and perhaps it's most often coming from the meat industry itself because they sense competition, is that your product's still processed. It's not a clean food. And actually, if you compare particularly your beef burger alternative product, it actually has more salt than meat traditional beef burgers. What's your response to that, fact or fiction? Oh, that is absolute fiction. Uh, the Impossible Burger and Impossible Pork is no more complicated than a piece of bread or a fermented uh, serving of yogurt. If you look at Impossible Pork, we have all the protein you want and all two and a half times the iron, but we have 40% less calories, 60% less total fat. 
in many ways, it's very simple. An animal consumes plants and in a complicated process way determines its future as meat with folks processing it. We just skip that whole complicated process called the animal and go straight to the plants. Arguably a much more simple, sustainable, and I believe one day far better tasting way for meat eaters like me and you to enjoy craveable meat. It makes sense to me, David. Very quickly, your CEO said no plans to go public right now. Just talk me through the logic of staying private here. And are you profitable right now as a company? Well, Impossible Foods has had the benefit of raising over $750 million from large investors who participate not just in private investments, but public ones. So our investors expect us to operate at the highest level of rigor. And as I've said before, you know, our mission demands every strategic option, including uh, the option one day to choose to make the decision to be public. But for now, we have not made that decision. We're not announcing an IPO or any public event. I think our logic is to align long-term investors who want superior returns with the mission and business model we offer. Uh, and so far, that's proved to be a very successful fit. Uh, for our investors in Impossible Foods. Fantastic. David, great to have you with us. David Lee, the CFO of Impossible Foods there. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Now, that Thank just you. wasn't one of my only favorite story coming out of CES. The other one, of course, was flying cars, and I mentioned it yesterday. Now, as Hyundai announced its partnership with Uber for a flying taxi service, the South Korean automaker unveiled its electric aircraft concept too. I spoke with the head of Hyundai's urban air mobility division. Listen in. We are announcing our first vehicle concept. It's named SA-1. It's a code name. But uh, it has eight uh, rotors, four tilt rotors and four lift uh, rotors, which means that four uh, rotors can tilt up and down uh, depending on the flight mode. And it can carry uh, four passengers uh, with a pilot. And it is really uh, designed for inner city travel, um, but also it could serve uh, rural uh, residents as well. So we're, we're super excited. Um, as a, as a uh, company well-known for uh, making cars, automobiles, we're entering into a very new business, but we are very confident that we can make uh, uh, this new era of aviation uh, a reality and possibility for everyone. You know, there will be a lot of people that look at this and say, you know, hang on a second, why is this ultimately better than a helicopter? Can you explain and answer that? Why, why is this superior to a helicopter? The difference between helicopter, uh, conventional helicopters and uh, this, this kind of design is mainly uh, the level of noise and also be able to distribute uh, the rotors, multiple rotors, uh, because we can put electric motors, uh, individual electric motors to each uh, propellers unlike uh, uh, the helicopter where you have to have a, a, a big engine to rotate a main rotor. So uh, the benefit uh, of this kind of design uh, uh, of a UAM is you reduce the noise, noise level quite a bit, so you can actually operate uh, in the city. And also uh, it, it increases the safety because you have multiple rotors 
if one fails, uh, the others can take the load. Uh, so uh, safety is increased, uh, noise is down, and that's why we, we believe we can, <clears throat> we can actually uh, operate this in a city. So interesting. Flying cars will be piloted initially, but over time they're expected to become fully autonomous. So we also talked about Uber's plan to launch air taxis in just three years' time. This vehicle uh, will be designed to have a pilot initially because we believe uh, passengers will feel much more comfortable to uh, have a pilot. But ultimately, we believe this kind of operation needs to be fully autonomous. So uh, we will put a lot more systems with the smart uh, uh, systems, I should say, compared to the conventional helicopters. So the pilot's role uh, we envision will be changing. So rather than actually flying the helicopter or uh, uh, this kind of vehicle, the pilot will be more of a, um, in the management role. And then uh, when emergency happens, the pilot will uh, engage to make sure that uh, uh, the vehicle lands uh, safely. But uh, I think it is important to note that uh, the fully autonomous uh, operation is coming. Uh, it, it may take some time, and um, I don't want to uh, forecast or pre predict uh, when that could be. But uh, the idea is trying to make these vehicles to be operated fully autonomous and the role of pilots uh, will be changed as well. I also want to talk to you about the deal with Uber here to support them in their plans for air taxis. They say they'll have air taxis in the skies by 2023. Is that too ambitious or do you agree 2023 will have flying taxis? I think uh, uh, it depends on the degree of uh, scale, if, if we are talking about some fixed routes, like a, a few spots in the city centers to the airport, as an example, and uh, so these are fixed uh, routes, and if you think about operating maybe few uh, vehicles uh, you know, a day, I think that type of operation could happen uh, as early as 2023 as uh, Uber is expecting. And there are a number of, as you probably know, there are a number of uh, uh, companies working on developing this type of uh, uh, vehicles. So the regulations need to come together uh, and uh, a, lot, a lot of things need to come together, of course, but very limited and uh, uh, in a safe mode, uh, I think the limited uh, scale of operation could happen uh, sometime in 2023 or maybe 2025 around the time. I volunteer for a test drive. All right, we've got to take a quick break here on First Move, but after this, the robots are coming to retail. Take a look at this. That's coming up after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Retail's big show, the world's largest gathering for the retail industry, is currently underway here in New York. Claire Sebastian is live at the Javits Convention Center with a shelf-scanning autonomous robot. Claire, always a pleasure to have you with us. Not the most dynamic robot. I was getting very excited there, but uh, tell us what this does and how it's going to revolutionize retail. 
Right, yeah, Julia, this is sort of a new phase that we're in. We're all, we've all got used to robots in fulfillment centers doing sort of uh, behind the scenes things, but this is a robot that is designed to be in a store with people. It makes that noise, I don't know if you can hear it, so that people know to sort of get out the way. It's very tall and slim, so it can sort of roam the aisles of supermarkets with people. Now, this is from a company called Badger Technologies. They have already deployed uh, floor cleaning robots, a bit different from this model, but in about 500 retail stores, supermarkets uh, across the US. And this is a new product that does shelf scanning. So basically what it will do is it'll look at shelves like this here in the, the cereal aisle. It'll check for whether something is out of stock. It'll check for price discrepancies, all the kinds of things that retailers at the moment are really struggling to do, very menial tasks that take human beings a long, long time. This is the world we live in, Julia, where brick and mortar stores really have to be absolutely perfect. There is no room for error if they're going to keep up with the rise of online retail. Imagining myself with a with a supermarket trolley sort of banging into this or getting stuck around this, quite frankly. But I think we shouldn't make a joke about this. When we talk about autonomous vehicle technology, there's always a fear that it's going to mean less retailing jobs, and it is a critical part of not just the United States economy, but more, far more broad than this. Is this a worker replacement tool ultimately, Claire, or does it just make workers more efficient? Well. Companies behind this will tell you that it is not a worker replacement. That this is simply about improving operations. That retailers, frankly, in such a low-margin business, don't have the money to hire extra people. They they need to improve uh, their operations without that. And Walmart has just made an announcement this week that they're expanding uh, shelf scanning robots to another 650 stores. They already have them in 350. They say they are designed to be an assistant uh, to employees. But it is clear that some retail workers will be worried about this. This is a business, of course, uh, where job losses have happened. We've seen a lot of store closures uh, over the last year. So it is perhaps a concern to retail workers, but the companies certainly behind this robot say that they are designed to improve things, not to replace people. And it's just one of the elements of the story here in what has been a pretty challenging time. I know you've been looking at the winners and losers, mm. the perfect opportunity while you're there to do so. Talk yeah. us through that. Yeah, so last year we really saw sort of a split emerge. We saw this in 2017 when people started talking about the retail apocalypse. But last year we saw uh, really big differences in the performances uh, among retailers. If you look at uh, the worst performing of the year, there were really the department stores, Macy's, Kohl's, Nordstrom, uh, really, really suffered. Americans do seem to be sort of rejecting the whole concept of department stores. And these companies have really struggled to update their technology and keep up with the times. But on the flip side, the winners are companies like Walmart and Target in particular. Uh, the stock there up 94%, almost doubled over the course uh, of 2019. This is a company that has really invested in e-commerce. They're doing buy online, pick up in store, one day shipping. They've managed to do fulfillment and, and delivery in a way that has turned out to be actually profitable. So we'll have to see whether this trend continues in 2020, Julian. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. I was just trying to do the math there. Almost 140 percentage points between the peak winner there and, and the worst loser. Really important for uh, retail investors at this moment. Claire, fantastic job. Have a fun day. Feels like it's uh, going to be a lot of fun there. <laughs> All right, let me give you a quick look at as we uh, wrap up the show here at what we're seeing for the markets right now. Consolidation, I've been calling it that. But we are seeing a bit of a pullback here for the Nasdaq, down some four-tenths of 1%. We'll be back in a couple of hours with The Express. But for now, you've been watching First Move. And to go make yours. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.